morning, Joliet First. So good to see you today. If you are new here, it's your first time, uh, just want to say so glad that you've taken time out of your busy weekend uh, to be with us. Uh, I'm Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have been in a series uh, over the last six weeks called The Good and Beautiful God. And uh, if you've not been part of our journey over the last six weeks, um, let me just say this. You can go back, you can go online, and you can watch via our media page previous talks on the good and beautiful God. Or you can uh, download our podcast and get previous messages. You can listen to it while you're on your way to work, uh, while you're working out, or as we've been saying for the last few weeks, if you just simply need white noise to get rid of those annoying people, uh, you can just put me in and let it rip, and you'll be good for the weekend. But uh, if you have missed over the last six weeks, uh, let me catch you up real quick. Um, we have been talking about the fact that we have been guided toward uh, myths and mistruths over a lot of our lives concerning God. That we've been taught things that aren't necessarily true about the good and beautiful God. And we believe those. We buy into those narratives. And in fact, those very things, what we believe about God, begins to shape our lives and the way we view the world. And so this morning, we're going to continue to address... And I think this could be one of the most important talks that we've given in this entire series. So if this is your first time here, this is a great time, great time to be here this morning. Would you pray for me before we begin? Lord, we give you thanks for this time. And we pray that you would be honored in this moment. May your words, may your words speak truth to us. And it's in Jesus' name. Well, some of you may know, prior to my transition to Joliet First, just a couple years ago, uh, I was a student pastor. I was a youth pastor. Uh, in fact, I transitioned from the military into uh, youth ministry. That, that, I'm telling you, that was a culture shock for me, to go from the military into uh, youth ministry. But I really, really loved youth ministry. And the reason why I loved youth ministry is because we did a lot of fun things, but we also did a lot of dumb things as well. Uh, fun and dumb, they go together, right? Uh, I can remember uh, one of the things we did every year annually was we had this thing called Martin Madness. We had a family uh, in our church. They were named the Martins, and they had a farm, and we would invite 75 to 100 kids out to their farm, and we would do lots of fun things, but we'd also do lots of dumb things as well. I don't know who got the bright idea. We just said, we'll have stations for the kids. It'll be so much fun. The first station we took the kids to uh, was a, a station with shotguns and skeet shooting. Now, I don't know who got the bright idea to give a bunch of guns to a bunch of teenagers uh, and let them skeet shoot, but they did it. I don't know whose bright idea that was, but uh, well, not a smart moment. And in the middle of skeet shooting, uh, we had stuff like landing next to us, and I had forgotten that we made bazooka potato shooting guns that could shoot over 100 yards, and unfortunately, I don't know why we did this, we put the targets down by where we were skeet shooting. And so potatoes were landing, like, to the left and to the right of us, and it was like, somebody's going to get killed here between the guns and the potatoes. I don't know who's going to die first. And along with that, we thought it'd be a great idea to get non-tear-free soap and put it on a 100-plus slip-and-slide. Apparently, being blind and crying down a slip-and-slide is a good time. But my favorite, my favorite, favorite part was Janelle and I would go to this place in Topeka called Boyle's. Joyland, and it looks about much like it sounds. I mean, it really does. It is like the flea market of heaven. Uh, you could find anything you want in this place, and so we would go, and we would buy bug-infested, king-sized mattresses from there. I know, you could buy used mattresses at this place. And we would get a king-sized mattress, and we would tie it to the back of an ATV. We'd pile a bunch of teenagers on top, and then we'd drive them out in the field, almost like tubing behind a boat, except it was in a field and not a mattress. 
It's nothing better than watching a bunch of kids fly off of a mattress and they come back with scrapes on their face and a lot, a lot of fun moments, a lot of dumb moments too. I think the dumbest moment I had was uh, we went to a conference, many of you are familiar with, called NYC, where a, kids from all over the world come together. And I had noticed one morning we had a speaker, our kids were not bright and awake, they were kind of lulled asleep standing. And so I thought to myself, I wonder what would happen if I just sort of leaned into Janelle. And what I thought would be true actually came true. When I decided to lean into Janelle, she tipped over and she fell into another student who fell into another student and into another student. And next thing I know, I've got a whole line of teenagers who have fallen over and I'm laughing and people behind them are laughing. Uh, they did not find it as funny. Uh, but what was really sad was the next morning, one of my students, she came to me and she said, uh, Brad, would you look at my leg? And she had this massive bruise on her thigh where she had fallen over into one of the seats. And I felt terrible. I mean, terrible. I had to call this lady's mom and say, listen, uh, here's what happened. I have witnesses. I have 6,000 of them. I didn't hurt your daughter. Uh, it was my wife's fault. She's the one that fell into her. So uh, we, we blamed Janelle and um, not a good moment. But one of the things that I love most about working with students is that students... You could be there in some of their dark moments and some of their discovery moments. Right? I know that we tend to minimize students' issues, but let me just say, uh, what students deal with today, what teenagers deal with today are real issues. Like, just because you're an adult doesn't mean that your problems are more important. And one of the things that I loved about being a youth pastor was being there in some of those dark moments. But I also love the discovery moments. When I had kids who had lots of questions, who really were really just kind of searching whether God was real and whether it existed, those were some of my favorite times. But one of the times I was a little concerned was when we moved up a bunch of students who had been in our kids' ministry. We moved them up to our youth ministry, and we would always have a time to get together and to know each other. But I remember this one specific time we sat down, and we started asking each other some difficult questions. Like, what do we believe as Christians? And what separates our faith from other faiths? And we started kind of walking down this road. And of course, the answer that I got from every single kid was God. God. And, and that's all I would get from them. And, and so I would say, well, tell me more about this God. Tell me more. Come on, tell me a little bit more. And that's all they could say. Now, what was concerning to me was that these were students that had grown up in our kids' ministry. They were nearly 12, 13, and 14 years old. And they could not express to me the importance of Jesus' story, Jesus' life within God's story. Not one person said the word Jesus. Now, that doesn't bother me. That's fine. I mean, but it, but, but it concerned me that we could have a group of students that had been in their church their whole life and not even understand the importance of what Jesus did and why he did it. Now, if I could get in your mind, if we could sit together and have a cup of coffee, I bet, I bet you would have some of the same questions. See, I think for many of us, we know the tenets and the teachings of the faith. We know the what, but we don't understand the why behind the what. So you can express to me all sorts of ideas about what we believe and, and, and everything else, but I guarantee that there are a lot of us here who don't know why we believe what we believe. And so if we could sit down, I bet you would have some of the same questions I have. Why? Why in the world did God have to send his son to the world? Why did he become flesh? Why did he die on the cross? Why couldn't God just forgive him from wherever God is? And, I mean, you wrestle with these questions. We wrestle with these questions all the time. And so this morning, this morning, the heart of what we're trying to do is to get at the why. 
We're trying to get at the why, because I think if we can discover the why of Jesus, we will begin to discover a God who is good and beautiful. Y'all with me so far? That's good. So this morning, we're going to do something a bit different. Many of you know I'm completely opposed to change, uh, but this morning, we're going to do something a bit different. Uh, that was sarcasm for those of you who know, don't, don't know my humor. Um, we're going to do something a bit different. Usually, we'll take a story, and we'll look at the life of Jesus, and then we'll kind of work through it. But this morning, I actually don't want to talk about a story about Jesus. I want to work through somebody who was with Jesus. There was a gentleman named John. Many of you uh, know John. Some of you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, we have four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John's uh, account is interesting because John was an eyewitness of many of the things that happened in Jesus' life. He was with Jesus in nearly every event of his life. And so John is writing from the island of Patmos. No, he wasn't on vacation. He was actually in prison there at this time. And so he's beginning to write about the very life of Jesus. And we're going to look at two key phrases. Two key phrases that John says that I think, that I think give us the answer to the why. That, that begin to give us a different understanding about this good and beautiful God. So... John's gospel begins this way. Now, you got to remember, this is the guy. This is the guy who was with Jesus at every moment. And he begins. He begins like no other writer in the gospel. And he says, in the beginning. I like that. In the beginning. You see, John understands that if we want to, to understand the present of who Jesus is, then we have to go back to the past to understand what the problem was. And so he says these words in the beginning for us to actually point back all the way to the very beginning. You see, we like to say this around here. If you want to discover the depth, look at the backstory. If you want to discover the depth of something, look at the backstory. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to go back to the beginning. That's why John puts it at the beginning, is he wants us to go back to the very beginning. And so John says this, or excuse me, when we go back to the beginning, we find that there is this God, this good and beautiful God who is love. Yes, I love my chair analogy, so we're going to try this one today. We have this good and beautiful God who is filled with love. In fact, we believe that is his very nature, that God's love is the very nature of who he is. And in the beginning, he creates people that begin to mirror his image of love. They look just like him. Out of this abundance, out of this beauty that God is, he creates these beautiful people. And he creates in their image. And the reason that God creates in the image, the reason why he creates in the image is so we can be expressions of his love to the world. That you and me and everybody else that God created can go forth into the world expressing, expressing what a beautiful God this is. Now, God says two things in the very beginning. In the beginning, he says two things. They're two of my favorite things that I love. The first one is he says, have lots of sex. And I know you're saying like, oh, seriously, you just said the S word in church. Um, listen, can I just say that God's not afraid of that word and you shouldn't be either. In fact, he tells us, he tells us in Genesis to fill the earth. And I always told my students when we'd have this talk, I would say, if you knew how much it took to make one baby, you can't imagine how much it would take to fill the earth. And so we know that God loves procreation. So he tells us, he says, have lots of fun, procreate. But then he says this, he says, I want you to care for my creation. In fact, the word that he uses here, the word that he uses here, the writer at this time, is dominion. He uses the word 
dominion. Now, I could give you Webster's dic- uh, definition. I could, give you, I could try to express what this word means, but the best way I can do that is to tell you a story. Maybe you've had this experience. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, I, probably about eight or nine years from driving, I remember we would drive home. We lived out in the country, and I would ask. I would ask my dad, can I drive the car? Can I drive this beat-up old Woody station wagon that we'd have to drive with the windows down because it had no AC, and the liner was falling off, you know, the one that was flapping your face, and all the stuff would get in your eyes, and yeah, that one. And I said, can I drive? And, and I remember when my dad would sit me on his lap. Now, again, I'm like eight, eight or nine. He would sit me on his lap, and he would, he would take his hands off the wheel, and he would allow me to drive the car while he pressed the gas. I was too small to even reach the gas pedal. But he let me drive down the country road. Now, little did I know he had his knee on the wheel underneath. I didn't see that, but yeah, I thought it was, man, I'm, you know, it's pretty cool. And then as I, as I got older, when I was in eighth grade, my dad said, I really want you to learn how to drive a stick shift. And so he said, we're going to go to the, c- the cemetery where you can, l- I don't know why you would take somebody to a cemetery to learn how to drive. But he got in the F-150, and, and it was the big old stick. He wanted me to learn how to drive it. He, he would take me there in eighth grade, and I would get behind the wheel. I was big enough now that I could get behind the wheel and actually drive this vehicle. And, and I don't know if you've had that experience. Maybe you have to go back to the first time when you started driving. But do you remember? Do you remember the excitement, the joy? Do you remember the adrenaline that was just rushing through your veins and coursing through your body as you got behind a machine that was so powerful, that was so amazing, something that you really couldn't even control if it got out of hand? Do you remember that feeling? It was a time of joy and excitement. You had the opportunity to guide and to lead and to move this vehicle wherever you needed it to go. This is dominion, right? When God, when God gives us dominion at the very beginning, this is a good thing. We are filled with joy. We are filled with excitement. We are filled uh, with the opportunity to lead and to guide and to move God's creation toward his love. That is the whole point of what we have here. Dominion, very good. But then, as you know, there's a shift in the story, right? There's, a, there's a, an extreme shift in the story And we quickly begin to see that not only do we want to be like God, but we want to what? Become God. We want to be God. This is really just our own selfishness getting in the way. And so we say in this moment, listen, we can be God for the world. We don't need God. And what I find interesting is the narrative shifts from this idea of dominion, which is good and lovely and beautiful, to this idea of dominance. Hmm. You ever think that perhaps we thought by taking over we would want to dominate over God, have authority over? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been dominated in something? Maybe it was in the workforce where you were trying to get a job and and the person next to you just outperformed you. Maybe it was on the football field, baseball diamond, or maybe it was in a play or a musical. You were trying out for a position, whatever it was, but the competition just absolutely dominated you. How do people become dominant in the very things that they're good at? Do they sit on the sidelines? Do they just hang out? No, people work for it. 
right? There's a lot of work. There's a lot of pain. There are a lot of tears. There's a lot of sweat, and there's a lot of blood that goes into becoming a dominant person in the world. And this is exactly what happens in the very beginning. This is exactly what happens to Adam and Eve. What happens to humanity at the very beginning is no longer is life about dominion and joy and excitement, but is about work and pain and suffering. It even says that in Adam's fields, we find weeds and thistles that begin to move up. And his whole role now is to, to express dominance over these, these forces that are kind of working their way in. Dominance. In fact, it's, it's even more interesting to me that following this very story, we find two people, two brothers, two brothers who are trying to outwork each other on their way to God. They're trying to outwork each other on their way to God. They're just chasing God. And we find that in the story of dominance, one is killed over the other. The first narrative about murder that we ever find is about dominance. That's kind of scary to me. And here's why. We have sort of assumed this dominant narrative in our lives. I, I don't know if you know this, but this has been taught to us. You see, would, would you want the car when you're in high school? You, you work for it. I know some of you just get the car, but, but some of us actually had to work for the car that we wanted. You, do you remember the house that you, you, you just worked for, you just wanted so bad, and you spent time and time again saving and toiling and working for that house? The job that you've always wanted, right? Everything that you've had in life, including the relationships that you have. Relationships, even with our loved ones, even with the ones that we care about the most, those are filled with pain and work and you're crawling and you're asking for forgiveness. These things are hard. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we live in a world that tells us this, that we must work our way to whatever we want. That you and I, we must work our way to whatever we want. And even worse is this idea has slowly crept into how we understand a God that is good and beautiful. Is that this God has turned his back on us and that if we want to get to God, then we have to work our way back to him. Again, it's about this story of dominance. It's about pain. It's about suffering. It's about tears. It's about sweat. It's about blood. It's about how are we going to appease the gods. In fact, this is every other religion's story. Is that we must all work our way to God. And this is how we spend most of our lives. Chasing a God we don't understand and chasing a God who makes us work for life. But like I said, John, John has some great things to say. See, he understands something we don't understand. He knows something that we don't know. In fact, this is why he writes to us today. He writes this story. He captures it down. And he says, in the face of this idea that we must work our way to God, listen to what he says next. He says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. 
I really love this idea. What John wants to say to us today is God is on the move of restoring us back to what he created us to be. You see, over the last couple weeks, we've witnessed stories of people that were undeserving. You and I have witnessed stories about people's lives in the Bible and even around us today that are undeserving of God's love. I remember just a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Matthew's story. Matthew is this tax collector who is cheating people out of their money. He has turned his back on his countrymen. He has turned his back on his countrymen. And people, people cannot stand Matthew because, because he is a liar, he is a cheater, and nobody wants to be around him. Society can't stand him. But he has to work for everything he has. And all of a sudden, we find Jesus shows up, and he sits right in front of him, and he says, listen, Matthew, I've not come for the holy people. I've not come for the church people. I've not come for the righteous people. I came for people like you. And today I want to give you new life. Will you follow me? And then last week we looked at a young lady who, 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 we don't know her circumstance, but she was caught in adultery. She was sleeping with somebody that she shouldn't have been. And, and, and we find that there was a group of religious people who wanted to pour out their wrath, of vengeance and hatred upon her. They wanted to stone and kill her. And yet we discovered the wrath of a good and beautiful God. Do you remember this? This is the wrath that, what? Restores. Jesus shows up in the middle of this just this emotional moment where everybody is just kind of flying off the handle. And he says to her, is there anybody here who condemns you? And neither do I. Now go, I love this, now go and do what I have created you to do. I love that. See, there are some of us who have decided that we, we feel like our security comes from our money and our jobs, and we put all of our trust, we put all of our trust into that very basket. We are so undeserving, and yet God becomes flesh. He meets us face to face, and he says, can I, can I offer you a different kind of trust, a trust that will satisfy you? He, he, there's times in our lives where we feel insecure, and so what we do is we belittle other people and the way they live their lives because it makes us feel better about who we are. And even in our own securities, God shows up and he says, listen, I have created you for something more. The word becomes flesh and says, I've created you for something more than this. See, sometimes we like to judge from a position of superiority. I'm better than you. And God says, hey, hey, let me, let me just show you for just a second what life looks like. Mercy in my world is a must. You will not rule the world. You will not dominate the world by judgment and positions of superiority. Maybe you just decided, I'm done with life. God is dead to me. He doesn't exist. I don't care about him. In fact, I don't want anything to do with him. John wants to say, the word became flesh. In fact, the message says this, that he dwelt he moved into the neighborhood. I love that language. He moved into your hood. I wasn't very good. I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. <laughs> I'll work on it. I'll do it with a little more. I, I can't. Anyway, I tried. <laughs> the word became flesh. And see, here's what God understands about us. 
He understands your humanity. He understands your struggle. And he understands that in our selfishness, in our quest for dominance, we have corrupted something that he has created to be good. We have corrupted something that was created to be good. In fact, part of that corruption means that we die. Corruption means that death is part of who we are. And so the word becomes flesh. Should we expect anything less than a God who finds us in our moments of death and says, you know what? I am a self-sacrificing God. I am a self-giving God. I don't care what people think about my reputation. I don't care what they think my nature is, if I'm supposed to be holy and perfect. But you know what? I'm going to self-sacrifice for the good of humanity, and I will take on the very thing that I've created and they've corrupted. And he takes on that death, right? Took it on for us. And the beauty, the beauty of this story is God says, no longer will dominance be the narrative of humanity, but I would love, I would love for the people that I've created to once again live out of he says, let me come back to life and show you something that is good, something that is beautiful, something that is joyful, something that is adrenaline pumping and exciting, something that you can, it, it moves us back into this place where we get to lead and to move and to create and to work in God's beautiful creation the way that he originally intended us to be, an image of his love, the image of the God who is good and beautiful. God is self-sacrificing. Can I, can I just say this real quick? If you, if you are the person that, that is feeling like this today, there is a God, whether you like it or not, who continuously meets you where you are, who looks you in the face and says, I love you, I care about you, I want you to live there's something more for you. Here's what I also know to be true. That if we believe in a God who works his way to us, then we must work our way to others. Now this is the hard part, right? You see, if, if we take on the image of God, if we take on his love, if God works his way toward us, then we, we are called to work our way toward others. Yeah, you, you know these people, right? These, these are the ones who make your life miserable because they, they have habits and problems. They have things that hang up their life that they can't get over. And we really want to just kind of step out of that situation. But, but God actually says, you know what? If we're in his image, then we must meet them where they are. And we must be patient and understanding. You know these people. These are the folks who have lost a loved one. And they're saying, God, where is he? Yeah. And, and, and you show up. And you say, listen, I may not have lost a loved one. I, I can't understand exactly what you're going through. But I will be present in the midst of your suffering. And, and as we like to say, it's in the midst of suffering that we find we are closest to Christ. And people can be close to Christ because you are present with them in their suffering. 
Maybe it's a coworker, right? You, you have these coworkers, the ones that are angry, the ones that you don't want to see, the ones you don't want to be around, right? The ones that we just kind of walk away from. Yeah, see, see what happens when we, when we become image bearers of a God who is good and beautiful, a God who is love. We say, listen, I, I recognize in this moment that I don't understand everything you're going through. See, the problem with us is we think we know everything there is to know about other people. And the reality is you know, no, you know nothing about other people because you haven't taken the time. And, and so part of loving people is learning to understand what they're going through. See, you think the reason why they're angry and they hate you is because you think it's all about you. But it actually has nothing to do with you. Have you ever considered perhaps that maybe they need somebody to just sit down with them face to face and say, let me hear what you're going through. Here's what I know to be true. That giving in life is living in life. That giving in life, self-sacrificing, if we believe in a self-sacrificing God, that giving in life is living life. This isn't scripted, so I, I might get in trouble, but whatever. This, this, this day is somewhat difficult. Um, I lost a good friend a year ago, and we have some family members here who lost uh, a son, son-in-law a year ago. Um, and I was thinking this morning, it's actually today is the, uh, a year since his death. And um, I was thinking about his life. And while his passing has been an absolute struggle, and it's something I don't often talk with people about, one of the things that I acknowledge this morning is that he is the embodiment of, of what we're talking about. He had his own problems. He had his own issues. But do you know how many people have come to Christ because of him? Uh, I mean, he would walk up to people on the street and he would say, listen, brother, I know that you've got something going on in your life, even though I have my own issues, but can I just meet you where you are? Let me, let me just talk to you for a minute. He would walk up to people on the street, as creepy as it is, he would just say, hey, I want to pray with you for a minute. And he wasn't the most holy person there is, but he just said, I just want to pray with you. Or, hey, listen, would you just come to church with me? I've got a church that was willing to accept you, and, and, and would you just come with me? And what he learned, even in his own death, is that other people came to life because of him. Even in his own death, people have found life. So I'm asking you today, if you want to live in life, you better give in life. God is a God who has worked his way toward us, and we must work our way toward others as the image of his love and the image of his purity. So what do I need you to do? I'm going to leave you with this. We've had practical pra practices over the last uh, six weeks. Um, I get it that some of us, they've been simple things like creating space in your life, uh, taking time for silence. I mean, these are really good things that we do. This is probably one of the more um, churchy things that we're going to ask you to do. We haven't really asked you to do any of that up to this point. But some of you have lots of questions about God. And so we're just going to ask that over the week that you would just read in a Bible, in any Bible, um, particularly one that maybe you would understand. So 
I mean, I wouldn't read the King James. That's like watching Poldark. I don't know. Um, if you watch Poldark, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Great show, by the way. Uh, anyway, I would love for you to read through the Gospel of John this week. And I think that what you'll find as John begins to take us again into conversations that other writers don't tell us about is you will begin to see a life, Jesus' life, of self-giving, self-sacrificing, one that is love. If you don't have a Bible, come see me. We'll get you one. We'll buy you one, whatever we need to do. But I would ask this week that you read through the Gospel of John. Let me pray for you. Lord, we give thanks for this day. We give thanks for this time. What an honor and joy it is to be part of a God who loves his people. And so this morning, I pray that we would begin to discover a God who deeply loves us. A God who meets us exactly where we are face to face and tells us, I have made you. I have created you for good. I have called you to lead and to guide and to create and to find joy in the life that I've given you. So this morning, We invite you to that. Pray for those who are experiencing loss, who have questions, who are concerned, who maybe even doubt whether you even exist.